Thank you to Dean Goyette for that very kind introduction and to all of you for your presence here today, to Thomas Aquinas College for the great honor you've done me in inviting me to give this uh, lecture today. Really, it is a great honor. I was very uh, moved to receive it and very grateful to be able to be here. Um, I've been so impressed uh, by everyone that I've met and everything that I've seen here. It's just uh, tremendous uh, what this community has been able to achieve uh, here, and um, uh, so it's a it's a privilege as a as a Dominican and a student of St. Thomas to be able to come and spend some time with you, and to uh, engage our minds in trying to understand something of what uh, Aquinas teaches us about the passion of Christ. If I can uh, throw out one quick um, advertisement, uh, we at the Thomistic Institute also sponsor a master's program. We'd love to have some TAC students come and study with us at the Dominican House of Studies. We even have some scholarships, uh, so we'd love to have some applications from you all. And um, one of your great alums, uh, Emily Berry, now Emily Sullivan, uh, has been working part-time for the Thomistic Institute for a while, and uh, she now is doing some homeschooling of her kids. She's not able to do as much work, so I was just saying at, at brunch, that I need to find another great TAC grad who wants to like listen to theology lectures and edit them for our podcast. I mean, you get paid to listen to theology lectures. I don't know if anybody here is interested in that kind of thing, but um, we, could, we could use more of you, and I hope that uh, you'll reach out and uh, consider uh, working with us. Does the Father want the Son to die? Aquinas on Christ's passion and the Trinity. The crucifixion is the climax of Jesus' earthly life, and it's the pinnacle of the whole work of salvation. If the Word has come into the world to reveal to us the hidden mysteries of God, and above all, the mysteries of God's inner triune life, should not the cross of Christ be the supreme moment of the revelation of the Trinity? Among prominent Catholic theologians, Hans Urs von Balthasar, and he's not alone in this, not by far, von Balthasar and many others interpret Christ's passion, death, descent into hell, precisely as such a revelation, as, in fact, a kind of intra-Trinitarian event. And among contemporary theologians, it's common to criticize Aquinas for leaving the Trinity largely out of account in the treatment of the mysteries of our salvation and especially of Christ's passion. This supposed omission is usually taken as evidence of Aquinas' alleged separation of the mystery of the Trinity, on the one hand, from salvation history and from Christology. That's the very common thing that you'd read if you read contemporary theologians when they treat Aquinas, they will very quickly dismiss him because they say, well, uh, he does that, that's obviously wrong, so we gotta move on and do something else. Some theologians would argue that the loud cry of the son at the climax of his saving action, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That this cry surely must tell us something profound about the very relation between the father and the son as the eternal Father's salvific will and the Son's eternal obedience to the Father play out in time on the stage of the world. And what is more, 
If the Father sent the Son into the world in order to save sinners, and if the cross was a part of that plan from all eternity, wouldn't that mean that the Father wants the Son to suffer and to die? Does the Son receive a command from the Father to suffer? Is that suffering as such, suffering itself, is that pleasing to the Father? Is that what it means to say that the cross atones for sin? That the Father's wrath towards sin is placated by the agony of the Son? Now, Thomists are often reflexively ready to highlight the theological and philosophical problems, or even errors, hiding in views such as these. And perhaps there are some in this auditorium who are already thinking about what some of these errors might be, and maybe this is where we'll go when we have our discussion session. You might start with divine impassibility. You might then speak about the unity of the divine essence and the inseparability of the divine persons. Maybe you'd want to talk about the beatific vision of Christ or his constant fruition of God that he possessed always in his soul or the nature of satisfaction and so forth. Yet relatively few students of Aquinas have taken up the challenge posed by contemporary theology to not only point out problems with their claim, but to articulate Aquinas' understanding of the Trinitarian dimensions of Christ's passion and glorification or exaltation, or to address how for Aquinas we can understand the cross as a revelation of the Trinity. But in truth, Aquinas' understanding of the entirety of Christ's life, and above all, of Christ's passion and glorification, this is all deeply Trinitarian, and it offers valuable insights into these central mysteries of the faith. And especially in his scripture commentaries, St. Thomas paints this crowning moment of Christ's earthly life, his passion, in vibrant interpersonal Trinitarian color. So probing into the thought of the angelic doctor on these points is, I think, very richly rewarding and opens up new vistas for a kind of spiritual contemplation of the highest things. So we could review all of the mysteries of Christ's life to bring this out, but I'm not going to do that now. It would take far too long. So we'll just jump straight to Christ's passion since it's there that the stakes are the highest, I think. And my goal is to bring to light Aquinas' rich account of the cross of Christ as a Trinitarian mystery by which the Son saves us according to a Trinitarian pattern. So I'm going to begin with, so this is a kind of a sketch of the roadmap for where we're going from here. I'm going to begin with a brief preface situating this within the wider perspective of the divine missions. And then I'm going to go over six different ways ways largely unnoticed by contemporary scholarship, by which Aquinas brings out the Trinitarian shape of our salvation through the cross of Christ. Okay, so let's begin with the, with the preface. A proper understanding of Aquinas' approach to Christ's passion and exaltation should view it in the wider context of the divine missions, which themselves point back to the eternal processions. If you're wondering where we're at in the Summa, the divine missions are in question 43 of the Prima Pars. So it's right after Aquinas treats the triune God, he treats the divine missions. 
So he's just treated the processions, and now he talks about the missions. Okay, so the, the divine processions of the persons, Aquinas says that they're the origin, the ratio, and the cause of creation, the exitus of all, of all other things besides God, as well as the dispensation of salvation accomplished by the divine missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there you're in the movement of reditus, back to God. Christ's passion is the center of this whole movement. It's the culmination of Christ's work in the incarnation by which the whole of creation is lifted up and restored and brought back to the Father. So through his passion, Christ manifests the Father, opens the way of our return to the Father, and descending into heaven, body and soul, becomes the firstborn of the dead to enter into the Father's glory. So sacrifice, satisfaction, merit, redemption, these themes which are often considered to comprise the lion's share of Aquinas' theology of the passion, they're undoubtedly important, but they don't tell the whole story. In fact, when we see them in this wider context of the divine missions of all things coming forth from God and returning to God, then we fully appreciate the true significance of the passion. So for Aquinas, Christ's incarnation is both revelatory and salvific. These are tied to each other. With its climax in his passion and exaltation, the incarnation aims at manifesting the triune mystery and drawing us into that mystery, first by faith and love in the life of grace, and then by the loving and beatifying vision of God in the light of glory. And Christ's revelation of the Father is thus an intrinsic part of his saving work. You can't separate that out from the other things Jesus is doing. It's an intrinsic part of the acts by which he saves us. It's central to the work of the incarnation. So the passion of Christ for Aquinas doesn't just have a negative effect. Many people, even in a certain popular Catholic mentality, think of the passion this way. It just has a negative effect, removing the effects of sin, something like that. Rather, for Aquinas, Christ's death and the exaltation that follows it are the culmination of the Son's visible mission in the fullest sense. So this is a quote from Aquinas. Christ, by his passion, opened the gates of paradise and recalled the exiles back into the kingdom. So the resurrected Christ breathes forth the Holy Spirit in full to the church so that we too can share in the divine glory that the Son and the Holy Spirit possessed with the Father before the foundation of the world. Our sins are forgiven and we're brought to know and love the divine persons in themselves as we possess them, as they are sent to us to dwell in your soul. And that's what Aquinas calls the invisible missions of the divine persons. Or to put this another way, the deepest reason for the passion, as well as its ultimate origin, cause, its finality, is found precisely in the processions of the divine persons in the heart of the triune mystery, which are the pattern according to which human beings come forth from God and that mark out the path of our return to God. Okay, that's the preface. So now we're ready to consider in a bit more detail how, according to Aquinas, the cross 
is a Trinitarian mystery of salvation. So here are the six points. So the first of my six points. The first aspect is that the cross is the culmination of the Father's gift of the Son to the world. Aquinas frames this in explicitly Trinitarian terms, commenting on the beautiful truth expressed at John 3.16, which Aquinas reads as referring to the cross. You know that passage, I'm sure. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that all who believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Maybe there are some people of my age uh, who remember the guy who used to go to World Series games and other, other uh, sporting events with a rainbow afro, and he would hold up a sign. He would always sit right behind home plate, you know, where the camera would be on him, and he'd hold up the sign that says John 3.16. So growing up watching sports, like I always knew John 3.16 was important. Today, a rainbow afro probably means something else. Okay, so John 3.16, Aquinas is focusing on this. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, so that's where we start in trying to understand how the cross reveals the Trinity. And Aquinas thinks that this is speaking about the cross. Now, I, for the sake of brevity, I won't go into detail here, but you can find it in Aquinas' commentary on John in chapter 3, lecture 3. So I'm just going to summarize it for you very briefly. In sum, Aquinas says there that the cross involves the greatest love. Think about that. The cross involves the greatest love. Why? Because of who is loving the Father. The Father is loving us so much that he would give us his Son. And who is given to the world? The Son, the divine Son, in person, in his divine mission, which culminates in his being handed over for us all in his passion. And then this produces the greatest possible fruit. What is that fruit? The Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit to the faithful, by which we are configured to the Son in his death and resurrection, and finally, Aquinas notes that the cross is the greatest sign or revelation of that Trinitarian love because it's a love that loves even unto death. Okay, that's very deep, very, very rich. And when you begin to enter into that, you can spend a long time contemplating that. It's very beautiful. That's the first point. So you already see Aquinas thinks about the cross as a Trinitarian mystery. The second point, this brings us to the second point. And that's really the title for this lecture. How could Christ's death on the cross be a gift of love? Now, that's a very deep uh, and difficult question. Okay? The Father sends the Son. He sends the Son ultimately to the cross. Could that be a gift of love? Does the Father want the Son to die? That sounds more like a perversion of love, doesn't it? I mean, a father who wants suffering for a child? No good father does that. Aquinas asked this question explicitly, and this is text A on your handout. He writes, but, but does the father really give him for this, that he would die on the cross? 
He did indeed give him over to death on the cross, insofar as he gave him the will of suffering on it. And this in two ways. First, because as the Son of God, he had from all eternity the will of assuming flesh and suffering for us. And he had this will from the Father. Second, because Christ's soul was inspired by God with the will to suffer. Okay, this is a very concise answer. It's typical of Aquinas' approach to this difficult theological question, which, by the way, he treats at greater length on other occasions, but I'm giving you the short version here. So what is he saying? The Father does not will Christ's death or suffering as such. He wills that Christ would have such perfect charity, such a great love for us, that he would even expose himself to death for our sake. So who wills death as such for Jesus? It's the people who crucified him. That is, sinners will his death as such. Now the Father permits this, and Christ accepts it out of love. And it's precisely this love of Christ, this charity, by which he accepts even what these people are going to do to him, it's that charity that satisfies for our sins and merits our salvation, not the suffering or the death in itself. So note the Trinitarian theology that informs Aquinas' text here. The Father is the ultimate origin of Christ's will to take up the cross. And this is true both as God and as man. So in generating the Son, the Father gives him from all eternity, this is a quote from the text you've got there, the Father gives him from all eternity the will of assuming flesh and suffering for us. And inspires the Son with perfect charity, especially as man, to suffer and die for our sake. Now this brings us to a central element of Aquinas' Trinitarian Christology of the Passion, and that's Christ's own charity. So that's the third point that I want to make. So the third point is about the Holy Spirit and Christ's human charity, or his love, the love in his soul. So a number of studies have underlined how for Aquinas, Christ's suffering on the cross is a supreme act of charity, an act of love, and that this Charity stands at the heart of Jesus' sacrifice and that it, it's the key element of the satisfaction that Christ's passion accomplished. But often left unexamined in this are the Trinitarian dimensions of that act. So that's what I want to bring out. The first point here is that the Father inspires Christ with the charity that prompts him to accept the passion. We've already seen an allusion to that in the first text, but Aquinas says it repeatedly, and he says it very clearly in text B on your handout, which I'm not gonna read, but you can, you can take a look at it. But the point is that the Father gives charity to the Son as man, that inspires him to undergo the passion. So Christ's humanity receives by a special inspiration from the Father the affection of charity that moves him to give his free consent to the Father's eternal will and hence to undergo the passion freely. Aquinas' choice of words in that text B evokes the invisible missions 
of the whole, or the invisible mission of the Holy Spirit. Since Christ's human charity is the effect of the Holy Spirit's proper and personal presence. This is a beautiful teaching of Aquinas that's not very well known, that he receives, that Jesus receives the Holy Spirit in full as man. The Father sends the Spirit to Christ's humanity and that Christ's supreme charity is the created effect in his soul of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in the humanity of Christ. So by tracing this charity back to the Father, Aquinas is also underlining that every effect of the Holy Spirit's presence in Christ's humanity is also from the Father. So we can say that the Holy Spirit moved Jesus to offer himself out of love. We can also say that the Father inspired Jesus with this charity. And in a certain way, it comes to the same thing. It's seldom noticed that Aquinas accords such a prominent place to the Holy Spirit in Christ's passion, but it's striking how, especially in some of his lesser-known works, St. Thomas attributes Christ's sacrifice to the, on the cross to the Holy Spirit in direct and personal terms. So he says things like this, Christ as man was inspired or moved or even impelled by the Holy Spirit to suffer for us. So as a young Dominican, when he was a bachelor of the sentences, St. Thomas writes, quote, as if by a kind of impulse of love for our restoration, Christ fulfilled the mystery, whence Isaiah 59 says, he shall come as a rushing stream driven by the spirit of the Lord. Now the mature St. Thomas uses the same image from the prophet Isaiah to make the almost surprising claim that the Holy Spirit causes Christ's passion. When you, when you really read Aquinas for a while, you begin to discover these things that he will say, and it's like very daring. You know, I would never dare to say this, but Aquinas is quite confident that we can say them. So this is text C on your handout. The cause why Christ shed his blood was the Holy Spirit, by whose motion and instinct, namely by charity for God and neighbor, he did this when he shall come as a rushing stream driven by the Spirit of the Lord. That's the same quote from Isaiah 59. But the Spirit cleanses, and so the letter to the Hebrews says, through the Holy Spirit he offered himself. And then Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and handed himself over for us as an oblation and sacrifice to God in an odor of sweetness. So Aquinas offers here two related reasons why the Holy Spirit causes the passion. The first is that since Christ acted by the Spirit's motion and instinct, the Holy Spirit is a true principle of Christ's human act of self-oblation. That's because the gifts of the Holy Spirit ensure that Christ as man wills what God wills in the mode in which God wills it. So the Holy Spirit is disposing Christ's humanity to act according to a divine instinct. That's Aquinas' terminology that he uses when he treats the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And also because the Holy Spirit's impulse activates Christ's human will, moves it from within to perform a supremely free human act. The second reason is, as Ephesians suggests, it's the effect of the Holy Spirit's personal presence, the, the perfect human charity of Christ, 
that makes Christ's voluntary acceptance of suffering and death the perfect oblation and sacrifice for our sins and merits our redemption. That's because it was Christ's charity and not his suffering and death as such that was maximally acceptable to God. So in short, we can say with Aquinas that the Holy Spirit is a true cause of Christ's passion. Okay, so far we've been speaking about descending gifts of love. The Father's love for us and for the Son, the Holy Spirit's gift of charity to Christ as man. But Aquinas also sees in Christ's passion a movement in the opposite direction, an ascending movement, which goes from Christ to the Father, and this is the fourth point that I want to make. So, to the Father. The cross, in a certain way, is to the Father. Now, here it's important to distinguish between Christ as God and Christ as man. So there are very good Trinitarian reasons why Aquinas never says that the Father, that, sorry, that the Son is apart from the Father or that the Son as God returns to the Father. Why? Well, because as God, the Son could never leave the Father, nor could he. If he could, he wouldn't be one God consubstantial with the Father. Okay, so Aquinas never says things like that, speaking about Christ as God. Nor does Aquinas ever say that as God, the Son gives anything back to the Father that's not already from the Father. Why is that? Well, that's because the Father and the Son are themselves constituted as divine persons by relations of origin. The Father, in one eternal act, gives everything he is and everything that he has to the Son, the Son receives everything that he is and has from the Father, and the Father loves the Son, and the Son the Father with the very same personal love, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from them both and is their mutual love and nexus. So even the Son's eternal personal love of the Father, so we're talking about in God, the Son, the Son's love of the Father in God, you could think about this in a two-human way and think of that as something new, given by the Son back to the Father, Aquinas doesn't go that way. That love is from the Father. It's necessarily from the Father because the Son receives everything from the Father. So what are we talking about when we talk about that love? We're expressing the Son's personal mode of being and acting that he is from the Father. Everything that the Son does is characterized by this. He is always from the Father. So to deny this would, to Aquinas' mind, destroy the very basis for Christian belief in the Trinity, which is that because the Son receives all from the Father and has nothing besides, uh, that's, that's the very sort of constitution of the Son as Son. And it's also because there are not two different relations of notional love in God. There's not one relation Father to Son and, and another Son to Father which would give you more than one Holy Spirit. There's only one mutual love, and hence only one person who proceeds by way of love from both the Father and the Son. So nothing in the Incarnation changes this truth. Rather, the whole point is that the Incarnation reveals and makes present in a new way the eternal procession of the Son who then sends the Holy Spirit. So Christ's humanity is marked to the depths of its being with the filial mode that characterizes the Son 
That is, he is from the Father. He is always oriented to the Father. And you see this in many different places in Aquinas' theology. So consider, for example, Christ's obedience. That's important for the passion, right? When St. Thomas quotes Philippians 2, the great Christological hymn in Philippians chapter 2, you know it, I'm sure, though he was in the form of God, Jesus did not deem equality with God something to be grasped, etc. Aquinas often adds the Father's name to underline that St. Paul is speaking in particular of Christ's obedience to the Father. He adds that into the scriptural text, Aquinas will add obedient to the Father. That's in text D, which I also won't read for you. I'll just um, let you take a look at it on your own. And likewise, text F tells us that this obedience is really just another way of saying that Christ loves the Father. So the obedience of Christ is from the Father because the divine will to save us through the cross is found first in the Father. And because the Father inspires Jesus as man with charity by giving him the Holy Spirit. And it's directed to the Father because as man, Jesus loves the Father and moved by the Holy Spirit, accepts and fulfills the Father's plan. So to Aquinas' mind, the Father's command neither constrains Christ nor negates his human will, it's rather the Father's plan for our salvation, which the Son embraces with the perfect charity given him in the Holy Spirit's invisible mission. So Aquinas writes, This itself that he obeyed proceeded from the love which he had for the Father and for us. So what is Aquinas getting at? The love of Christ, the human love in his soul, ordered his whole life. It ordered his whole humanity back to the Father. And that's how it reverses the disobedience of our first parents and their sin. And so restores us to grace and perfects us. It's specifically the human love in the soul of Christ which does this. It's God made man entering into our condition and restoring our humanity and it's precisely insofar as the Father gives the Holy Spirit to Christ as man. Note also the Trinitarian revelation here. The cross reveals to the world that Jesus loves the Father. And that's precisely what Jesus himself says about it as he's telling his disciples that he's preparing to go to the cross. He says that the world may know that I love the Father. That's what the cross is supposed to be revealing to us. So Jesus' obedience is only one example of this. We could find lots of others. It's not difficult. For example, Aquinas' text on Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross. In both those places, he underlines that Jesus is directing that prayer to the Father. Similarly, as a priest, Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice and a holocaust to the Father. And Aquinas writes, quote, he makes satisfaction to God the Father for sin by his love and obedience. So through the cross and the resurrection, Christ goes to the Father as man 
opening the way for us to come into the Father's presence in the heavenly sanctuary. So even in heaven, the passion's orientation to the Father is still there. Christ's glorified body continues to bear the wounds of the passion, quote, so that making supplication for us, he would always show to the Father the sort of death he endured for man. Okay, this brings me to my fifth point. This is uh, the famous line that many contemporary theologians have focused so much on, Christ's cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? For many contemporary theologians, how one accounts for this poignant cry of Christ on the cross is a critical measure for assessing a theology of the passion. Some claim that it shows that the Son, precisely as God, was abandoned by or separated from the Father. Now, Aquinas certainly would not agree with that. But it's not generally acknowledged that Christ, or, sorry, that Aquinas does think that there is a Trinitarian dimension to Christ's cry of dereliction. Aquinas regards this cry as revealing a deep mystery to us. And it Aquinas uses it to bracket two Christological errors. One error is Arian, and the other is Nestorian. So-called Arian reading of Christ's cry is to read it as if the word, as word, is being abandoned by God. And when Aquinas addresses that, he just says very simply, quote, this is an impious reading. He thinks you have to just exclude that. That's because there can be no separation between the word and the Father. Jesus himself tells us that at John 7, 29, he who sent me is with me. Okay, the Nestorian reading makes an error in the other direction. It considers the cry as spoken by a man who as man could be separated from God. Aquinas' solution is to say neither of those things. It's rather that the person of the word says this. So it's really the word who says it, but he says it as man. It's not just said by a man, it's said by the word according to his humanity. That is, the subject who is speaking is the incarnate son. He speaks in his human nature with reference to his humanity's relation to the father, not with reference to the word's relation to the father in the divinity. Okay, in what sense then, if you take that reading, in what sense can we say that Christ as man is abandoned by the Father? Is that really accounting for the meaning of, of the scriptural text? Well, this is text F on your handout, where Aquinas addresses this. Someone is called abandoned by God when God is not present to him, just as God is seen to be present when God protects him and fulfills his petition. The Lord God is with me as a strong warrior, therefore those who persecute me will fall and will be weak, from Jeremiah. And because Christ was not freed from his bodily sufferings when he was in the Passion, for this reason he's called abandoned at that hour, that is, he is exposed to the Passion. Romans 8, he did not spare his own son, etc. Moreover, his petition, Father, if it be possible, let this chalice pass from me, did not seem to be fulfilled. 
because that petition was made according to his flesh. And then the quote from Isaiah, for a moment, for a little, I have abandoned you. That is, I have exposed you to the passion and with great mercies, I will gather you, namely in the resurrection. And so Jesus says, why have you abandoned me? That is, why have you exposed me to the passion? So Christ's cry refers to the suffering that he undergoes in the passion from which the Father doesn't protect him. It doesn't refer to any sin in Jesus or to any separation between Jesus and the Father. Christ is called abandoned not with respect to his union with God or the hypostatic union whereby his humanity is united to his divinity, nor is he abandoned with respect to grace. He's still, he still has the fullness of grace. It's rather with respect to his passion, with respect to suffering. In fact, for Aquinas, Christ's anguish on the cross surpasses all other human suffering precisely because Jesus is not separated from God. He has the beatific vision and therefore perfect wisdom and charity. So we can talk about that in the discussion period too, if you like. It's a very interesting subject, the beatific vision and Christ's suffering on the cross. Aquinas ties Christ's cry of dereliction to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It expresses his natural human revulsion from suffering and death and the magnitude of his human feeling in the face of the, of the passion. But it doesn't mean that Jesus wills as man to avoid the cross. In fact, he's quoting Psalm 21 when he says that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or abandoned me? And that Psalm expresses confidence in God. So Christ as man hoped in God's spiritual aid as he pronounced these words from the cross. Quote, this is Aquinas again, as if Christ said, you have abandoned me by exposing me to a bodily passion, do not depart from me by supporting me with spiritual aid, end quote. Aquinas offers another explanation of this cry. He says that Jesus is speaking on behalf of sinners. That is, the head is crying out with the words of the body united to him. Now, this reading harmonizes perfectly with this first explanation that I was just uh, discussing. Aquinas says that Christ, quote, mourns over sin in persona nostra, but his sorrow over all the sins of the world brings with it a suffering in body and soul which is his own, end quote. For Aquinas, then, Christ's cry from the cross is a revelation and an instruction. It manifests the depth of the mystery of the incarnation, the reality of Christ's suffering as man, the magnitude of his love for us and for the Father, and finally, his human confidence in and obedience to the Father. Okay, this brings me to my sixth and final point, which is that Christ is glorified on the cross. We hear this on Jesus' own lips the night before his death, he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. That's in John 17. For Aquinas, this petition englobes both the passion 
and the exaltation of Christ in the resurrection, the ascension, and the sending of the Holy Spirit. And it's marked with major Trinitarian themes. St. Thomas does not rigidly divide these glorifications of Christ from each other. They're facets of a single mystery, which is the hour of Christ's glorification. So the following text, text G on your handout, is typical of Aquinas' analysis, although there's many others we could have quoted here. So again, text G. Christ asked to be glorified by the Father in the Passion through the many miracles that were then shown when the sun was obscured, the veil of the temple was rent, and the tombs were opened. Therefore, he says, in this sense, glorify your Son by showing me in the Passion to be your Son. Thus the centurion, seeing the miracle, said, Truly, he was the Son of God. The dominant chord that Aquinas is striking here is that Christ is glorified in the Passion by the Father when the miracles accompanying the crucifixion show, at least they show to the centurion, that Jesus is truly the Son. We can detect something similar when St. Thomas claims in another text that the Father glorifies Christ as man by making him the high priest who offers himself, quote, on the altar of the cross. So quoting Hebrews 5, 5, St. Thomas suggests that Christ did not give this glory to himself. He received it from the Father because as man, he's made a priest by the Father. Indeed, he's made the high priest through which through whose offering the whole world is saved. As St. Thomas says in another place, quote, it's as if Christ had said, the Father by his love for me has ordained that through my passion I would redeem the human race. So we can go on. The cross is glorious because it's the culminating moment of Christ's own self-revelation and self-manifestation of his loving obedience, inspired by the Father's love, moved by the Holy Spirit, of his identity as the Son, who is from the Father, and thus, as man, is ordered to the Father. In his passion, Aquinas writes, Christ showed his supreme love. It shouldn't surprise us, then, that St. Thomas is fond of quoting St. Augustine, who says that Christ on the cross was not only a priest offering a sacrifice, but was also a master or a teacher. Quote, the cross was not only the gibbet of the sufferer, but was also the chair of the teacher, the cathedra of the teacher. I was thinking about this in preparing the homily from today's Mass. Aquinas points to the cross of Christ, where he sees Jesus to be the perfect teacher. As incarnate wisdom itself, he reveals the Father to us and shows us the way to the Father. What is that way? It's the way of the cross. In fact, Aquinas multiplies scriptural images to express this aspect of the cross's glory. And this is a beautiful text that is worth meditation. Text H from Aquinas. That Christ himself carries the cross, though it may be a great reproach in the eyes of the impious and unfaithful, is a great mystery to the faithful and pious. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, that is to us, it is the power of God. 
Christ carries his cross like a king his scepter as a sign of the glory that is, is his universal dominion over all things. He carries it like a victor carries the trophy of his victory, like a teacher carries his lampstand on which was placed the lamp of his teaching because the word of the cross is the power of God. No one lights a lamp and places it under a basket but on a lampstand that those who enter would see the light. So the cross is the lampstand of Christ's teaching. When he hangs on the cross, he's lifted up so that his glory and the light of his wisdom would illuminate the whole world. Christ's teaching from the cross thus is the example of how we are to live. Quote, for as Augustine says, this is Aquinas again, the passion of Christ is sufficient as a complete instruction for our life. There is no example of virtue lacking to the cross. Aquinas goes on, whatever the tribulation, its remedy is found in the cross. End quote. In other words, we are saved precisely insofar as we are conformed to Christ crucified. Perhaps the most fundamental dimension of the cross's glory for Aquinas is that it reveals the triune God, and that's the point I'm going to conclude on. This is exactly what Christ means, Aquinas thinks, when Jesus says at the hour of his passion, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, he will glorify in him in himself. That's from John 13. And so Aquinas comments on this in text I on your handout. Christ began to have this glory, that is that others would know the glory he has in himself, in the resurrection and in the passion, in which men began to know his power and his divinity. The Lord speaking about this glorification of his says, now is the son of man glorified, namely, according to his humanity, in his passion, which was imminent, glory is an effect in the knowledge of men, and God, namely the Father, is glorified in him. For the Son not only reveals himself, but also the Father. Father, I've manifested your name. And hence, not only the Son is glorified, but also the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and him to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. But it belongs to someone greater to return more than he receives. And so Christ adds, and if God is glorified in him, that is, if the glory of God the Father somehow increases because of the glory of the Son of Man, insofar as he's better known by all, God has also glorified him in himself. That is, he has made known that Christ Jesus is in his glory. Okay, this text is very dense. But it's rich with Trinitarian implications. So in the Passion and Resurrection, Jesus is made known as possessing glory in himself, which is a way of revealing that he is the Son in person. His humanity is glorious with the Word's glory, and the Passion and Resurrection glorify Christ as man because he is made known as the word. He's made known to be the word. Although Thomas doesn't mention it here, it's clear 
that this also necessarily implicates the Holy Spirit to whom it's proper to glorify the Son whose interior illumination leads others to recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. But going back to the text we were looking at, Aquinas continues, the Son not only reveals himself, but also the Father. Why? Because he is constituted as a person by his relation to the Father. So when you know the Son as Son, you know that he has a Father. You know the Father as Father. So the glorification of Christ as man in the Passion is also the revelation, the making better known, and hence the glorification of the Father, and in fact of the whole Trinity. Finally, Aquinas concludes by tracing this glorification back to the Father as its origin. Christ Jesus is made glorious by the Father, who has sent him in the glory of the Son, a glory that is from the Father, bringing us to know and love God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in other words, is the goal of the Incarnation, and according to Aquinas, it's the ultimate fruit of Christ's passion. Thank you very much. <laughs>